Good morning again. This morning my uh, computer shut down, my laptop at just the wrong time. Periodically my phone, my iPhone also, uh, like a lot of other phones, maybe like most phones, maybe like most, maybe all phones, I'm not sure. Frequently or periodically my iPhone needs what Apple calls a hard reset a forced shutting down of one's phone so that it has a break and then it can start up again and function as it's supposed to, as it's supposed to work, as it's supposed to function, as it's intended, as it's designed to do and be at its best. Have you ever needed a hard reset? Like a phone that's been working really hard or for a long, long time, too long, with lots of apps maybe working at the same time, grinding on top of each other. Maybe some updates are overdue. It hasn't been turned off in a while. It's rarely given a full and proper charge or recharge and rest. It eventually needs a hard reset, Apple says. Do you ever need a hard reset of some sort? I do. You've put a lot of miles on your car, and because of the roads that you've been driving on and the imperfections of your car, your car's wheels begin to get out of alignment. And your car begins to pull to the left or pull to the right. Or your mind and your heart get overworked, overused. They don't get in for regular maintenance as the pressure in some of the tires of our automobiles doesn't get checked often enough. Maybe the pressures in our lives are not checked or kept in check often enough. And then one day you wake up and you realize that your life is veering to the left or veering to the right and no longer going down the center of the lane. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, she says. It's happened to me more than once. And if this has ever happened to you or maybe it's happening for you right now, then maybe this morning is a chance for you and for me to do a hard but really good reset. In the world in which we live, in the context in which we live, and all that's spinning, the chaos, the things about which Jim just prayed for us. Ah, oh, all of the hot spots of all different kinds. Maybe what we need is a hard reset. So take a really deep breath. Uh, with me for just a moment. Remember that the Greek word for breath or breathe is the same Greek word for spirit. So breathe in, breathe out, take a breath, breathe spirit. And then let's pray together. We're going to use the words that I'm going to put up on the screen in just a moment as we have the last few Sunday mornings when I've preached. So wherever you're at, whether you're at home or somewhere else, whether you're by yourself or with someone else or with other people, whether you want to stand right now or sit or bow your head or whatever you want to do, let's pray these words together and let them be our prayer as we open God's word. Let's pray. God and Father of the Lord Jesus, speak to us now through your word. Open the eyes of our hearts to your truth and your grace. 
Transform us according to your word and by your spirit. Mold us into the image of Jesus. We give you our attention. We give you ourselves. Bring about your kingdom in us and through us, here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We're reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark for a while, maybe a long time. Uh, most scholars think that the Gospel of Mark was the first of the four Gospels to be written. Most scholars think that Mark was used as a source for Matthew and Luke, one of two main sources that Matthew and Luke used. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of material and content in common. That's why they've always been called the synoptic Gospels or uh, the synonymous Gospels. They have a lot in common, but Mark is shorter. Mark is more compact. Mark moves more quickly. Mark gets to his point very rapidly over and over and over from one thing to the next to the next. We're going to start at the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. Listen closely. This is God's word. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm going to stop there, and I'm, not going to, and I'm going to stop there not just this morning, but I'm going to stop, or not just for the moment, but I'm going to stop there for all of this morning. And we're just going to stop right there and not go any further than that handful of words right now this morning. Interestingly, though, if we were going to continue at this pace throughout a study of the Gospel of Mark, one verse per Sunday, uh, going through the 678 verses of Mark's Gospel, we'd finish up Mark's Gospel in exactly 13 years, and hopefully by that time the pandemic would be over and our world will be completely different. However, we're going to take a little bit more rapid pace through the Gospel of Mark, but this morning on day one, week one, Sunday one, just one verse to help us reset. And what you've probably already noticed about verse one, the first verse, is that there is no verb in this verse. So it functions like a title for Mark's Gospel, for his essay for his story for his book it functions as a title it functions as an overview the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ the son of God and in the Greek text this is seven words and I noticed last night that in the middle of those seven words is the word Jesus He's right there in the middle. He's at the center, and he is the center. He's the center of everything. He's the protagonist of Mark's book. He's the main character of Mark's story. He's the ground around, around which everything revolves. He's the axis on which everything spins, and not just in verse 1 of Mark's gospel, but in the entirety of Mark's gospel and the entirety of the four gospels, the entirety of the New Testament, the entirety of the scriptures, the entirety of reality. Reality, cosmic history, cosmic present, human history. Jesus is the centerpiece, the focal point, the axis, the fulcrum of all things, whether one acknowledges that or not. Dallas Willard says Jesus it was the smartest man who ever lived. Through all times, he knew humanity. He may not have had the fullest education. But he knew all, and he was the smartest, wisest, brightest, most intelligent, all-knowing human who ever lived. 
You remember this uh, essay called One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure in human history. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of humanity on earth as much as this one solitary life. Jesus. And Mark attaches the name to the name Jesus, the word Christ. And most of you know that Christ was not Jesus' last name. Jesus Jones, Jesus Smith, Jesus Johnson, Jesus Yang, Jesus Cohen, Jesus Gonzalez, Jesus Patel, Jesus Christ, Mr. Christ. No, that's not the way it was. Christ was not a name, but a title which in Hebrew was Messiah, which in Hebrew meant anointed one, which to the Jews referred to the one sent by God who would lead, who would rule, who would rescue them, who would save, who would restore to the nation Israel its once great status, which may sound a little familiar today. Yes, Messiah was. He always was to be, would be, a political figure when he came. And to such the people of Israel were looking, waiting, yearning, longing, wanting, hoping, praying. And language has been used in recent weeks in our context, in our world, in our nation about political figures leading, ruling, rescuing, saving the nation. But we know that no politician will save us, not from either party or any party. No politician will be able to heal our hearts, forgive our sins, restore our integrity, bring us back to the center, bring us to the feet of God's throne in worship. No mere man or woman working through the power structures of our world will ultimately or ever be able to save us, rescue us, heal us, redeem us. That work belongs alone to Messiah, to Christ. And so we worship Him. And so whether your car or your heart or your life has drifted to the right or the left, be reset in Messiah, Savior, who has the power through his cross to save you and save me from your sins and my sins, from destruction, from ourselves, from one another, from others, from the devil, from the evil one, from destruction, and all the desires that lurk within us. Jesus, 
the Christ, Messiah, anointed one, Savior, who can save us. And Mark identifies this Jesus, the Christ, as the Son of God. In Mark's gospel, the only thing that Jesus is called more often than Christ or the Christ is Son of God. Though Jesus never calls himself either Christ or Son of God in this gospel. But everyone else does. The divine voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism calls Jesus Son. Demons repeatedly acknowledge in Mark's gospel Jesus' sonship. The high priest at Jesus' trial refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And finally, at Jesus' crucifixion, even in his crucifixion, a Gentile soldier cries out, surely this was the Son of God. And to the Jews, Son of God was a title used for kings and for the Messianic king in particular. In a Hellenistic or Greek context, Son of God was a term of great respect, a heroic person. Or one who participated in deity, one theological dictionary says. And rolled together Son of God and specifically the Son of God becomes a uniquely political divine figure who exists or in whom exists the fullness of God and the best of humanity which we see in Mark's gospel. The fullness of God and the best of humanity. We see throughout Mark's gospel, we will, the true humanity of Jesus in all its grittiness, in all its earthiness. But we also see one who was fully divine. What Paul writes to the Colossians, the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt, the image of the invisible God. John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Mark describes the reality or the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as good news in his first fragment sentence, sentence fragment. Often the Greek word here, euangelion, is translated into the old English word with which we're familiar, the word gospel. But it literally means good news, euangelion, you is the prefix, eu. Good news, good message, good tidings, glad tidings. And this wasn't a uniquely Bible word, Christian word, Mark word. Rather, it was a word taken from the context of the time. And there would be euangelion often when uh, a king or a nation had conquered another nation. And the news would spread through the empire slowly. Bits and pieces. It was euangelion. It was good news. When a king was coming to one's area, to one's region, to one's town or one's city, when he was passing through, frequently the word euangelion would be used to announce his coming. Good news. Good news. Glad tidings are here. And that's the way Mark uses the word gospel here. Good news is coming when we fast forward to verses 12, 13, 14, 15. We see Mark beginning to unpack exactly what this good news gospel, euangelion, does mean, will mean. The king, the long-awaited king has arrived. He is present. He is here. And he is inaugurating, he has inaugurated his kingdom, his rule, his reign. 
I need a reset in my life to this good news. In the midst of so much bad news, in the midst of so much ugly news, in the midst of so much uncertainty, in the midst of so much unknowing about the future and what's to come and what's to happen, and the stress and the anxiety and the worry in which we as a people are immersed right now, I need the promise of good news and its coming, Mark declares. The good news of a king, the good news of a Messiah, the good news of a ruler, the good news of God and man all in one. Gospel good news, here it comes. And then Mark finally working backwards begins his gospel with the word arche or beginning. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there are several meanings loaded in his use of the word arche or beginning to start his gospel. On the one hand, he's saying, this is the first line, this is the first verse, this is the title. Here it is, I'm getting going. This is the beginning of the good news. This is the beginning of my story. This is the beginning of my count, my essay, my book. This is the beginning. Here it goes. But on a much more profound level, Mark is also doing what John does years later when he begins his gospel with exactly the same word. His very, 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 very different gospel begins with exactly the same Greek word, arche, beginning, in the beginning. And both of them reference back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. The beginning of the Bible, the beginning of all things, the beginning of time, the beginning of reality, the beginning of recorded history, the beginning of everything, when before which there was nothing. Because this in Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his rule and his lordship, as Messiah, as Son of God coming here, is a new and radical and welcome and wonderful beginning. It is a new era that he is ushering in, a new reality, a new way of being, new access, a new beginning. But there's another meaning that Mark is alluding to also when he speaks of, when he begins with beginning. Because he's going to tell a few things about Jesus in chapter 1, but he wants the reader to know that there is so much more to come. That there will be power exhibited. That demons will be cast out. Water will be walked on. People will be healed of all sorts of diseases and maladies and illnesses and dysfunctions and addictions and on and on. There will be good news of every sort unexpected good news for those who didn't even know they needed good news. There will be good news when Jesus confronts and when Jesus flips over tables. There will be good news when Jesus gives us what we don't want and what we didn't know that we needed. There will be good news when Jesus is taken to trial. Good news when Jesus is in a garden. Good news for all of mankind and for you and me. When nails are hammered into flesh, good news. When a woman shows up at a grave in a tomb that's empty. This is just the beginning. Mark's whetting our appetite because there's a lot more good news to come.
But there's still one more element of good news that Mark must be referring to here. And that is what John alludes to, that through Jesus' disciples, that God would do even greater things, that God would do more things. In John's gospel, he says, there are so many things that have already happened that I can't even tell you in this book. And Jesus says through his disciples, more and more things will be done and the kingdom of God will be manifest. And so the beginning of the good news is a promise that there is more good news available for you and me. That there is more good news that we're not just reading history from something in the past, but that God still is unfolding and unpacking and revealing and dispensing good news in Jesus Christ of every sort and such is available in our lives as we bow to him as king. When we allow our lives to be reset to be brought back to the one who is the center, the one on whom all things revolve and have their being. There is no verb for now, though. There is no verb to start off Mark's gospel, but rather declaration, proclamation, promise, and the wedding of our appetites. There's nothing that we are supposed to do at this point. That will come next week when we move into uh, the introduction of John the Baptist and his call to all people to repent as Jesus spoke about, as Gladys spoke about, you're not Jesus. But for now, as the psalm, psalmist wrote in Psalm 46, the call from the Scriptures to me for a moment in this first few words in this first verse is to be still. To be still and know that I am God, that I will be exalted among the nations, the psalmist wrote, speaking for God. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Twenty-four of us, plus a facilitator, gathered on campus yesterday for a leadership retreat, the jump-starting of a process that we began back in January and put on hold for five months because of COVID and the shutdown and sheltering in place. In one of the breakout sessions that I was a part of, we talked about the barriers or the threats to our future. And some of those threats are our fears. Some of those threats aren't just the coronavirus, but there are fears. They are distractions. They are the ways that we fill our lives with other things. They are the voices of our society. They are our attempts to keep up with the Joneses. They are our packing of our own schedules with so many things and so much noise that we don't have time for and we don't have ears for the voice of God, the message of God, the good news of God, that a king is coming who can save and redeem and heal and who will reign. I read something by Soren Kierkegaard this past week that spoke to me and maybe will speak to you. Kierkegaard, uh, 19th century Danish philosopher, 
theologian, existentialist. He wrote, if I were a doctor and I, I were allowed to prescribe only one remedy for all of the ills of the modern world, his modern world almost 200 years ago, I would prescribe silence. For even if the word of God were proclaimed in the modern world, it would be choked to death with noise. It would not be heard because there is no silence. Therefore, create silence. And for me, that's a word that I needed to hear. I've allowed my life to be discipled by news and sources of news far too often rather than the word of God. I've allowed the noise of social media to fill my life and my mind and my heart with other things. I need silence, as Kierkegaard suggests, in order to hear the word of God. And then something else I ran across in my reading this week from a favorite author from the 20th century, A.W. Tozer, pastor, author, theologian. It was a prayer, and he wrote, he prayed these words. Lord, teach me to listen. The times are noisy and my ears are weary with the thousand raucous sounds which continually assault them. Give me the spirit of the boy Samuel when he said to you, Speak, for your servant hears. Let me hear you speaking in my heart. I get used to the sound of your voice, that its tone may be familiar when the sounds of the earth die away, and the only sound will be the music of your speaking voice. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Lord, teach me to listen. The times, those times, and Kierkegaard's times, and our times, are noisy. And our ears are weary, weary with the thousand raucous sounds which continually assault them. Give us silence that we might be able to hear. That we might be brought back to the center that we might be grounded again and always in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. There is no other, and we have no other hope. Our world has no other hope. Our nation has no other hope. May our prayer as the church be Give us ears to hear, God. May we, may we be attentive to you and to you alone, to you first of all and to you last of all. You are our king. And we will be reset. And we will be recalibrated. And we will bow before God in worship. And his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Help us, God, to be attentive to you, not just when we're in this space or on this campus or gathered together or watching a live stream or reading a book. Help us to be attentive to you when we're angry, when we're upset, when we're frustrated, when we're lost, when we're confused, when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're stressed, when we don't know what the future holds, when we're sick when our bodies are failing, when relationships are falling apart, when we run out of hope. 
Help us be attentive to you. You are our strength. You are our ground. You are our salvation. You are our rock. You are our fortress. You are our hope. You are a king. You are the one who can save us from all things in this life and for this life and in a life to come. Help us to hear your voice. And as a good shepherd, help us to follow you, to walk in your steps, to be your people, to live in and by your grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.